Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Vinyl Countdown, the podcast where I, Jeremy Levine, break down my favorite vinyl releases from cover to cover and everything in between. Holy shit, how is it taking me this long to discuss this band? On this week's episode, I'll be diving into a game-changing classic, the one and only Doolittle by Pixies. Uh, released April 18th, 1989, it is the second studio album by them after Surfer Rosa was released in March of 1988. So in less than a year, they released two classic fucking albums, like just back to back. And not to mention, uh, whoa, what was the other one? Uh, Come On Pilgrim also was released, which was an EP, but before that. So I mean, th- they just had a stretch of a couple of years that were insane, right? Insane. So What's, I mean, I guess it's not really, I wrote that it was crazy. It's not really crazy. Uh, it happens all the time. But Surfer Rosa didn't didn't sell well at all. Like, it was critically acclaimed. And, you know, I guess people that, that knew knew and it was like, oh, this is so great. But um, didn't do a whole lot of, didn't, didn't you know, push a lot of numbers, I guess. But um, since the release of Doolittle, it, ha- it has been acclaimed by many critics and has been included on many best albums of the 80s lists. Uh, the album is also featured in the book 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. So, uh, yeah, they came out and sold, um, eh, you know, steadily, uh, reaching about 100,000 units in six months. And as of 2015, it had sold 834,000. So that's pretty substantial. Now, before I get into the band and the album, let's get on down to Variant Corner. So there are... 36 variants listed. Obviously, not going to go through all of those, but uh, I will talk about the ones that I have and, and the most recent reissue that came out as well. I had the black reissue from 2004, uh, which I guess would have been, let me see if I can do some math real quick, uh, the 15th anniversary of it. And also, I have the Newberry Comics exclusive. Uh, it's clear with brown and green splatter. Limited to 1,000. They also pressed a brown and green swirl and a brown and green pinwheel as well. Also both limited to 1,000. Those are all part of the 30th anniversary uh, run of pressings. Now these are going for anywhere from $35 on the low end for the pinwheel. Uh, middle of the road for the splatter, 55 60 on the high end. The uh, swirl is the one that people are asking the most for. Uh, 65 to 95 dollars now just a little heads up a little insider information here guys and gals um because i like you all the pressings that i talk about here these three in particular are still available at retail on newberry's website so you know google search uh newberry, newberry comics uh doolittle and they'll come up for 34.99 with shipping you're looking at about maybe 38 39 bucks as opposed to trying to buy them on discogs or whatever so go there and get them if you don't have them yet and if you want them uh i will say both pressings sound really good so i I highly recommend getting them the the 30th anniversary you you don't get anything special with the packaging which i've talked about before I, i i like when certain bands when there is a big anniversary deal and they really it really shines through on the packaging and like they 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 make it worth the the little bit extra that it may cost, or you know, they just make it worth your while because it's like cool. They threw in um, you know, a picture book, or they threw in um, I don't know, just something cool to say. Ha ha! Look at this. But they didn't do that on here. Uh, similar to Joy Division and their 40th anniversary of uh, Unknown Pleasures, it's kind of just bare bones. Like, hey, we made it to 40 years. Ha! Thanks, I guess. So there's nothing like necessarily like special about it, other than the fact that it's a really cool pressing. And like I said, that this or the black, either one, they sound the same. So if you don't want the standard, like, boring black variant, which you can probably get for, like, 20, 25 bucks, yeah, you know, I'd say spend the extra 10 bucks and get the, the nice, like, cool one, right? So let's get into the band real quick. They were formed in 1986 in Boston, Massachusetts. The original lineup was comprised of uh, Black Francis on vocals, uh, rhythm guitar, Joey Santiago on lead guitar, Kim Deal on bass and backing vocals, and David Lovering on drums. Uh, the band disbanded uh, acrimoniously in 1993, but reunited in 2004. Uh, after Deal left in 2013, the Pixies hired Kim Shattuck as a touring bassist, RIP. She just passed away earlier this year, actually. She was replaced by Paz 
Oh, boy. Lynn Chanson, uh, the same year, who became a permanent member in 2016. Uh, the Pixies are associated with the 1990s alternative rock boom and draw on elements including punk rock and surf rock. Uh, their music is known for its dynamic, loud, quiet shifts and song structures. Francis is the Pixies' primary songwriter. His often surreal lyrics cover offbeat subjects such as extraterrestrials, incest, gross, and biblical violence. Uh, they achieved modest popularity in the U.S., but were more successful in Europe. Their jarring pop-influenced acts such as Nirvana, Radiohead, The Smashing Pumpkins, and Weezer, and I'm pretty fucking sure Modest Mouse, too. I, I couldn't find anything that, like, specifically cited that, but there's no goddamn way they didn't. Uh, and I talk about that on the Modest Mouse episode, too. But whatever the case, their popularity grew in the years after their breakup, leading to sold-out world tours following their reunion in 2004. Guitarist Joey Santiago and songwriter Black Francis, born Charles Michael Kitteridge Thompson IV, I mean, if that was my name, I'd probably change to something like Black Francis, too, met when they lived next to each other in a suite while attending the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Uh, although Santiago was worried about distractions, he noticed Francis played music, and the pair began to jam together. Uh, Francis embarked on a student exchange trip to Puerto Rico to study Spanish. After six months, he returned to Amherst and dropped out of the university. Uh, the two spent 1984 working in a warehouse with Francis con composing songs on his acoustic guitar and writing lyrics on the subway train. Uh, the pair formed a band in January of 1986. Two weeks later, Francis placed an advertisement seeking a bass player who liked both the folk act Peter, Paul, and Mary and the alternative rock band Husker Du. Uh, Kim Deal was the only respondent and arrived at the audition without a bass as she had never played one before. Uh, she was invited to join as she liked the songs Francis showed her. She obtained a bass, and the trio started rehearsing in Deal's apartment. They make it sound like she went on some kind of quest or, <laughs> or something to, to acquire a bass to get into this mythical uh, weird band or whatever. So after recruiting her, Kim paid for her sister, Kelly Deal, to fly to Boston and audition as a drummer. Uh, though Francis approved, Kelly was not confident in her drumming and was more interested in playing songs written by Kim. She would later join Kim's band, The Breeders. So uh, Kim's husband suggested that they hire David Lovering, who Kim had met at her wedding reception. The group arrived at a name after Santiago selected the word Pixies randomly from a dictionary, liking how it looked and its definition as mischievous little elves. Uh, Pixies moved rehearsals to Levering's parents' garage in mid-1986 and began to play shows at bars in the Boston area. They were noticed by producer Gary Smith, uh, manager of Fort Apache Studios. He told the band he, quote, could not sleep until you guys are world famous, uh, end quote. So the band produced a 17-track demo at Fort Apache soon afterwards, known to fans as the Purple Tape, because of the tape's cover's purple background. Uh, funded by Francis' father at the cost of $1,000, the recording session was completed in three days. Uh, local promoter Ken Goes became the band's manager, and he passed the demo to Ivo Watts Russell of the independent record label 4AD. Uh, Watts Russell nearly passed on the band, finding them too normal to, quote, rock and roll, but signed them at the persuasion of his girlfriend. Uh, in the book, Fool the World, Gary Smith mentioned that he ordered 500 copies of the tape. Uh, they were all sent out to the music industry, generating few negative feedbacks until one was handed over to 4AD founder and boss Ava Watts-Russell. On Discogs, there aren't any for sale now, but the sales history shows a range uh, between $800 and $974, which, I mean, I get it. But um, So upon signing with 4AD, eight tracks from the purple tape were selected for the Come On Pilgrim Mini LP, or NEP, whatever you want to call it. That was their, you know, the Pixies' first release. Uh, several of the tracks on the tape appeared in later albums, albeit re-recorded, such as I'm Amazed, Broken Face, and Break My Body on Surfer Rosa. Now, uh, Here Comes Your Man on Doolittle. And let's see. So this is uh, Francis drew upon his experiences in Puerto Rico, mostly in the songs uh, Vamos and Isla de Enchanta, uh, describing the poverty in, in Puerto Rico. So I, I think I'll talk about it more later, but the purple tape version of Here Comes Your Man, I to me is actually better than the Doolittle version. But that's just, just me, right? So it says here to the uh, the religious lyrics in Come On Pilgrim and later albums come from his parents' born-again Christian days in the Pentecostal church. Uh, critic Heather Ferries says themes such as sexual frustration in the song I've Been Tired and Incest, again, gross, in Nimrod's Son and the Holiday Song on the record. That, you know, some themes that are prevalent throughout, I guess. So then, you know, Come On Pilgrim was 
followed by the, their first full-length album, again, Surfer Rosa. The album was recorded by Steve Albini, who was hired by Watts Russell on the advice of a 4D colleague, uh, completed in two weeks and released in early 1988. Uh, it gained them uh, acclaim in Europe. Uh, both Melody Maker and Sounds gave Surfer Rosa their Album of the Year awards. Uh, American critical response was also positive, yet more muted, a reaction that persisted for much of the band's career. The album was eventually certified gold in the U.S. in 2005. After the album was released, the band arrived in England to support Throwing Muses on the European Sex and Death Tour, beginning at the Mean Fiddler in London. The tour also took them to the Netherlands, where Pixies had already received enough media attention to be headlining the tour. Uh, The tour became notable for the band's in-jokes, such as playing their entire set list in alphabetical order. Meanwhile, Pixies signed an American distribution deal with major record label Elektra. Around this time, uh, Pixie struck up a relationship with the British producer Gil Norton. Norton produced their second full-length album, Doolittle, which was recorded in the last six weeks of 1988 and seen as a departure from the raw sound of Come On Pilgrim and Surferosa. Doolittle had a much cleaner sound, largely due to Norton and the production budget of $40,000, which was quadruple that of Surferosa. It also featured the single uh, Here Comes Your Man, uh, which biographers Josh Frank and Karen Gans describe as an unusually jaunty and pop-like song for the band. Uh, Monkey Gone to Heaven was popular on alternative radio in the U.S., reaching number 10 on the Billboard Modern Rock tracks, and the single entered the top 100 in the U.K. Uh, Like Surfer Rosa, Doolittle was acclaimed by fans and music critics alike. So, speaking of that music, let's get into it. Uh, Track one, Debaser. Oh man, so Debaser is one of the most perfect introductions to just it's perfect it's one of the best openers like i've been saying that a lot lately but this song is fucking great it's a, a loud upbeat song uh, about the famous french short film un chien andalou the baser features many of the band's signature musical motifs a loud distorted cacophony of guitars bouncy bass lines cryptic lyrics and black francis's classic half screaming delivery about that movie this song is referencing it is a 1929 Franco-Spanish silent surrealist short film by Spanish director Luis Bunel and artist Salvador Dali. Uh, it was Bunel's first film and was initially released in 1929 when, with a limited showing at Studio de Ursulines in Paris, but became popular and ran for eight months. Unshin uh, Andalou has no plot in the conventional sense of the word. The chronology of the film is disjointed, jumping from the initial once upon a time to eight years later without events or characters changing. Now, when I watched it because it was a, just somebody ripped it on YouTube or whatever, it's, I, I couldn't tell which, I couldn't tell which language it was in, but the title cards were, I guess, in French, but then the translation of those cards was in Spanish, so... I had no idea what was going on, uh, which doesn't matter anyway because the movie itself just doesn't make any fucking sense. That being said, though, I'll, I'll get into it later, but I do highly recommend you watch it because it's pretty cool. It uses dream logic in narrative flow that can be described in terms of the then-popular Freudian free association presenting a series of tenuously related scenes. The, the screenplay of the film is based on two dreams of its creators. The idea for the film began when Bunel was working as an assistant director for Jean Epstein in France. Uh, Bunel told Dali at a restaurant one day about a dream in which a cloud sliced the moon in half like a razor blade slicing through an eye. Dali responded that he had dreams about uh, a hand crawling with ants. Excitedly, Bunel declared, There's the film! Let's go and make it! Don't know why he would sound like that, but that's whatever. They were fascinated by what the psyche could create and decided to write a script based on the concept of suppressed human emotions. The title of the film is a hidden reminiscence from the Spanish saying, The Andalusian Dog Howls, Someone Has Died. Uh, the screenplay was written in a few days. Uh, according to Bunel, they adhere to a simple rule. Quote, do not dwell on what required purely rational, psychological, or cultural explanations. Open the way to the irrational. It was accepted only that which struck us regardless of the meaning. We did not have a single argument. A week of impeccable understanding. One say, said, a man drags double bass. No, the other objected, and the objection was immediately accepted as completely justified. But when the proposal of one liked the other, it seemed to us magnificent, indisputable, and immediately introduced into the script. In deliberate contrast to the approach taken by Jean Jean Epstein and his peers, which was to never leave anything in their work to chance, with 
every aesthetic decision having a rational explanation and fitting clearly into the whole, Bunel made clear throughout his writings that, between Dali and himself, the only rule for the writing of the script was no idea or image that might lend itself to a rational explanation of any kind would be accepted. He also stated, nothing in the film symbolizes anything. The only method of investigation of the symbols would be perhaps psychoanalysis. Uh, in his 1939 autobiography, Vignel said, In the film, the aesthetics of surrealism are combined to some of Freud's discoveries. The film was totally in keeping with the basic principle of the school, which defines surrealism as psychic automatism, unconscious, capable of returning to the mind its true functions beyond any form of control by reason, morality, or aesthetics. For many years and still, published and unpublished and unpublished reports have circulated that Munell had used a dead goat's eye or that of a dead sheep or that of a dead donkey or other animal in the notorious eyeball slicing scene. However, in an interview in 1975, Munell claimed that he used a dead calf's eye, thus solving the mystery. Through the use of intense lighting and bleaching of the calf's skin, Bunel attempted to make the furred face of the animal appear as human skin. A not-so-fun fact also, uh, both lead actors from this film later um, uh, killed themselves. Uh, Pierre Batchiff, he, uh, he died in 1932, uh, just a few years after this movie came out, from a drug overdose that is suspected to have been suicide. And then Simone Muriel, uh, who was the lead actress, committed suicide in 1954 by dousing herself in gasoline and burning herself to death in a public square. God damn. Now, there was a sequel made in 1930. It's translated as the Golden Age or the Age of Gold. Uh, it's the French is a La Hage Dior. Sure. In, like I said, 1930, it was a French surrealist satirical comedy directed by Louis Bunel uh, about the insanities of modern life, the hypocrisy of the sexual mores of bourgeois society, and the value system of the Catholic Church. Uh, now, it says here the screenplay was by Dali and Vunel. However, uh, Dali left early in the production over disagreements about the movie's content. Now, he basically didn't want to piss off high society or the Catholic Church, so he was like, nah, man, do you, bruh. I'm stepping out. So, uh, it was one of the first sound films made in France, along with a movie called Miss Europe and Under the Roofs of Paris. The premise sounds pretty awesome, honestly, and extremely brave for 1930s anywhere really you know uh, upon receiving a cinematic exhibition permit from the board of censors uh, the movie premiered at studio 28 in paris on november 29th 1930 later on december 3rd the great popular success of the film provoked attacks by the right-wing league des patriots our league of patriots whose angry viewers took umbrage at the visual statements made by bunel the reactionary French patriots interrupted the screening by throwing ink at the cinema screen and assaulting viewers who opposed them. Then they went to the lobby and destroyed artworks by Dali, Jean Miro, Man Ray, Yves, Tengay, Tengay, and others, right? On December 10th, 1930, the prefect of police of Paris, Jean Chiap, uh, arranged to have the film banned from further public exhibition after the Board of Censors reviewed the film. A contemporary right-wing Spanish newspaper published a condemnation of the film and of Bunel, which described the content of the film as, quote, the most repulsive corruption of our age, uh, the new poison which Judaism, Masonry, and rabid revolutionary sectarianism want to use in order to corrupt the people. That's, yeah, pretty bad. In response, the De Noel's family uh, withdrew the, uh, the movie from commercial distribution and, uh, and public exhibition for more than 40 years. Now, I mentioned that name. I didn't go into the whole story of it, but they are basically the ones that, that uh, bankrolled the film. Like, they allowed him, they you know, financed it in order for him to make the film, right? Uh, nonetheless, in three years, three years later, in 1933, the film was privately exhibited at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Forty-nine years later, from November 1st through the 15th in 1979, the film had its legal U.S. premiere at the Roxy Cinema in San Francisco. 
the film critic Robert Short said that the scalp, decorated crucifix, and the scenes of socially repressive violence wherein the love-struck protagonist is manhandled by two men indicate that the social and psychological repression of the libido and of romantic passion and emotion by the sexual mores of bourgeois society and by the value system of the Roman Catholic Church breed violence in the relations among people and violence by men against women. Uh, speaking of that scene, the final vignette is an allusion to the Marquis de Sade's novel, The 120 Days of Sodom. The intertitle reads, 120 Days of Depraved Acts. And uh, it's about an orgy and a cask, uh, wherein the surviving uh, orgiists, which I didn't know that was a word, I guess, are ready to emerge to the light of mainstream society. Uh, from the castle door emerges the bearded and berobed Duc de Blangy, a character from Desaad's novel, uh, who greatly, greatly resembles Jesus, uh, who comforts a young woman uh, who has run outside from the castle before he takes her back inside. Uh, afterwards, the, a woman's scream is heard, and only Duc reemerges, and he is beardless now. The concluding image is a Christian cross, festooned with the scalps of women to the accompaniment of jovial music the scalps sway in the wind so um <clears throat> there's a lot to be said about this film obviously uh, already a weird place for a band to go but this is pretty standard uh, fare i guess for, for them you know he, he opens the song with um you know got me a movie i want you to know slicing up eyeballs i want you to know you know in reference to the movie to the movie of course now according to francis himself he said i I'd say I probably wrote the lyrics in 10 minutes, and I stand by those lyrics. I'd seen that movie a few times. I mean, to me, the, the song is my version of study cliff notes for the movie. It's all real fast, a case, to, a case of, you know, let's quickly show you what's going on here, right? But was he out to say anything, you know, pressing in particular? He says, uh, you know, I guess the only thing I put in the lyric that could be considered an original concept was I just echoed the sentiment of the filmmakers which was, hey, we're just doing what we want to do. It doesn't make sense, and it might be shocking, but to me, it's normal. I'm debasing the norm. I'm breaking down the societal norm and cutting it up to come up with something surreal and jarring. Uh, that was the sentiment of the people who were making those films. I'm a debaser. You know what I mean? Uh, it's almost an Americanism to change a word that way. So in the refrain, he sings, uh, he says, but, but I am Unshin Andalusia, as he says like a weird... He changes the, the Andalu to Andalusia or whatever, I guess, because it sounds better. According to him, he changed it because Andalus sounded too, quote, French. So he changed it to something that sounds, I guess, a little more Spanish. They do use Spanish words in their lyrics. And, you know, again, Unshin Andalu literally means an Andalusian dog in French, even though later in the article I pulled from it, he says that it is, quote, bad Spanish. But um, so anyway, yeah, I mean, it's an absolute wonderful opener of a song. Uh, I don't want to talk about it too much, but... Yeah, I wanted to get a clear picture of the the idea, the kind of shit they're writing from, right? And uh, it is a great song that leads into probably my second favorite song on the record, Tame. Fast-paced and uh, breathy, Tame typifies the quiet, loud pixies dynamic that gave rise to the grunge movement, is what it says here. Uh, Black Francis told Esquire, uh, the lyrics of the song are about college girls who lived in my neighborhood in Boston that I found obnoxious or whatever. Uh, probably I found college people in that area obnoxious in general, male and female. Uh, drunk college kids shredding around thinking they were great and in and me in my obnoxious way declaring them mediocre. Sounds pretentious as fuck. But then again, look where the baser came from, right? So, I mean, they're built on just being pretentious. So the drums in this song are some of my favorite on the record, like... It is, this song, this record needs just just to be heard, right? If you somehow haven't heard it yet, I would definitely, again, highly recommend picking it up and, or just you know streaming it somewhere. Just take your time to listen to it, right? It's it's more about just the way the record feels, not so much about what every lyric is supposed to mean. I guess it's not super meaningful in that way, and that comes straight from them too. It's not just me saying that, but you know, normally that idea kind of turns me off. The idea of like you know. The feel of a song is something that's like, it's important, but I prefer, like, I want the lyrics, I want to get a deeper meaning and all that. You know, a lot of these songs, they sound great, but ultimately don't have a whole lot of meaning. And like I said, normally that's something that I, I kind of shit on, uh, I guess, pop bands or like The Killers, for example. I really shit on them hard on the episode I did on them, but this record is just better than anything they've ever done anyway. So track three, Wave of Mutilation, is up next. Uh, I've got fond memories of playing... This on the very first rock band. 
always go back and I try to think which one, I don't know which one it was, if I was into this song first and then Rock Band, and it was like, oh, hey, uh, that song is on Rock Band, cool. Or if it was the other way around. I, I want to say that I think Rock Band is what made me start diving into this into this album as a whole, right? So apparently this song is about a Japanese businessman who would uh, commit suicide by driving their cars off of a cliff and into the ocean. Also, according to Black Francis, it references the El Nino streams and weather patterns, and there are contemporary references in it, but they all are there to kind of serve this nautical state. Uh, Water going up and down and moving across the earth, and the churning up of organic material turning into rock, water turning into clouds. Uh, Like the Yoko Ono song says, we are all from different rivers. Fun. Uh, Great fucking song, too. Like, it's... um. I don't, I don't know. It, it, it's got a um, just a certain again, a certain feel about it. It's just the drums are great. The and the thing about it is, there's nothing super technical about what they're doing on drums, guitar, bass, anything. But it all put together, something about it, it just sounds fucking great. You know, there, there's a certain I guess a certain bliss to be found and to be had in the simplicity of what they're doing, right? And then of course with with Black Francis's voice and with the weird lyrics and all that, like you tie it all together. And although, again, it's not super technical, it is, it's very, I don't know, it's just very cool to listen to, I guess. I don't know. Uh, it's hard to describe. But speaking of though, so uh, I Bleed is up next at track four, which is my absolute favorite on the record, like hands down. So in the same interview with Esquire, uh, Black Francis said that uh, this could be categorized as one of my uh, archaeological songs, uh, references to free European conquest, the Indian peoples of the Southwest, specifically Arizona, where I had studied briefly before I dropped out of college and started the Pixies. Uh, lots of bones and teeth and footprints and stories from the past, uh, all kind of mixed up into a minute and a half of music. It's hard to say what something is about when you're thinking about something that is very large, maybe multiple topics that are loosely re- loosely related, and then you try to write a little pop ditty about it, and you're boiling it down to a handful of words. Uh, not only are they supposed to rhyme, they're supposed to represent all these things that, you, that you've that you been thinking about, and you end up with this highly abstracted thing. And he also told uh, NME that uh, in the first two verses, there's no topic whatsoever. Uh, it's all very automatic. The rest is about Arizona. Uh, there's a very famous cliff dwelling there with two or three-story uh, houses about a mile up inside these cliffs. It's about 900 years old, and you can still see the handprints from the people who pressed the, uh, the plaster onto the walls. And you can take your hand and place it in the print, and it's very, like, ooh, cool, right? The song also has my favorite bass line on the record, uh, favorite drums on the record. Um, I love how Kim is, like, lightly singing throughout the song while uh, Francis is kind of, like, speaking the same lyrics. Uh, the contrast between the two is great. Yeah, the chemistry is great. The pattern on the drums, too, is so much fun to play and so much fun to listen to. Once again, go ahead and listen if you've never heard it. But uh, verse 2, he says, uh, Prithee, my dear, why are we here? Nobody knows. We go to sleep. As breathing flows, my mind secedes. And he says, I bleed. I bleed. And like I said, the whole time, like, Kim's in the background, like, Prithee, my dear, why? Like, kind of singing along with him. And, like, it's the, the dynamic between the two is fucking great. Uh, so prithi is an archaic synonym for please, uh, likely used to fit the rhyme scheme, obviously. And sleep is the only solace from life's hardships. As many others have said, sleep is the cousin of death. Uh, human constructs restrict the narrator from being able to really figure out his existence. Uh, the question of why we're here in the first place is answered with a passive, nobody knows, showing the narrator's ty- tiredness from a long life of work. Uh, the narrator is more content to let his mind secede and figuratively bleed out of his pent-up stress. I mean... Sure, why not? It's so good, though. It really is, like, it's one of my favorite songs, period. So up next, uh, Here Comes Your Man, originally sung by Joseph Gordon-Levitt in 500 Days of Summer. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> no, but he did do a good job in the movie. I did like that. But, um, no, th- there, there is a good cover, actually, too, by uh, Megan Smith, which, of course, I talked about on the 500 Days of Summer episode way back in episode 10. Uh, also, I believe I reveal in that I revealed there that I incorrectly thought that it was Zoe Deschanel singing that for years. I thought I actually looked at the song credits, so whatever the case, the song. Uh, it was the second single released off the album, the first being Monk and Gone to Heaven. It's one of the purest pop songs in the Pixies' discography. Uh, Here Comes Your Man was one of the anchors of the band's 1989 masterpiece, Doolittle. 
In contrast with the fractured compositional style the band became known for, Here Comes Your Man follows a straightforward uh, verse, pre-chorus, chorus structure with a short instrumental break in the middle. Uh, the very definition of a perfect three and a half minute pop single. Black Francis told Esquire, uh, it uses a common, uh, a very common chord change in pop music going from the D to the G to the A. I don't know what that means. I don't, <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, I can't read music, although I have an idea of what that means. It's very singable. It's got that riff, which I composed on a piano when I was about 14. So the song in different versions has been around since I was a teenager. Uh, when it came time to finalize lyrics and things, it goes off into scary Hoboville. Um, at some point, it feels uh, almost subversive to put things into the music like, here comes your man. I don't even know what that means in the context of the song. Uh, I think because it's talking about sad old men, a sort of sarcastic comment, and it's a world that's dark and edgy inhabited by hobos. It's like a dark David Lynch movie, he says. I guess I get a lot of satisfaction when people are pumping their fists in the air and singing like it's some sort of simple love song, which would be fine because there's nothing wrong with simple love songs, but this is not that. Uh, either that or they don't care or aren't interested, just like I was interested when I wrote it. Uh, we're all on the same page. It's sort of about something, but it's not at all what it sounds like. It's misleading. So uh, the song starts off with the lines, Outside, there's a boxcar waiting. Outside, the family stew. Outside, we wait till face turns blue. I know the nervous walking. I know the dirty beard hangs. Out by the boxcar waiting. Take me away to nowhere plains. Now it kind of makes more sense. The first verse, at least. You know. Uh, about the song, so he says, uh, again, he wrote it when he was about uh, 15. This is what he said in this particular one. About, uh, quote, winos and hobos traveling on the trains who die in the California earthquake. Uh, before earthquakes, everything gets very calm. Animals stop talking and birds stop chirping and there's no wind. It's very ominous. So, yeah. So, again, that makes everything kind of make more sense in the song now. I, I tracked down, like I said earlier, I tracked down the version from the purple tape, and I actually like it uh, better. Uh, I had no idea that it was, um, you know, that it was that old of a song, I guess. But um, it's pretty cool to find that out. So, moving on to track six, Dead. Uh, one of many biblical allusions in the Pixies discography, Dead tells the story of David's seduction of Bathsheba from the perspective of David. Uh, he told Esquire, the song falls into a category I would call biblical, some stories, mythological or biblical, uh, whether they really happen, some stories resonate. Uh, Dead specifically is referencing David and uh, Bathsheba from the Old Testament. Uh, King David was on his rooftop one night, uh, being a creep and watching a woman bathing in the nude, and he was aroused, I guess. Uh, anyway, he sent some men after her, and I don't know whether it was a uh, rape or a seduction, but she became pregnant. Uh, so David arranged for Uriah, her husband, who was a soldier in his army, to be sent to the battle on a suicide mission. Uh, so dead is a metaphor for sex reduced to the most basic, uh, ugly, bad lust with equally bad results. So yeah, he, he said that in, uh, in April of 1989. Uh, it is an interesting concept and so somehow not the weirdest one on the, whole, on the record so far. Another one that I wouldn't have had a single clue as to what it was about if I hadn't done this episode, so... You know, it's been pretty fun learning. I mean, it's an okay song. Honestly, like it's, I'll listen to it if I'm like going through the whole album, but if it pops up on just a random shuffle, I actually tend to skip it. So Monkey Gone to Heaven is up next, and this was the lead single off the record and one of my favorites, a rare environmental song by the Pixies. It's dealing with man's confused place in the universe. So um, of the song, Black Francis said that it belongs in the mythological category. Uh, I'm less concerned with making sense than making the lyrics pop out of the speaker when people are listening to the music. Uh, some of it is obvious, uh, easy, obvious enough to understand. But then if man is five, the devil is six, then God is seven. And guess what? That rhymes with mucking gone to heaven. And it's all a little bit of a mixture of saying things that are real and relevant with a lot of Alice in Wonderland, jibber jabber and gobbledygook. Uh, this is a surreal work. I'm a surrealist. Songs can't just be one plus one equals two. You know, it's one plus one equals bran muffin. He uh, really kind of sounds like a pretentious uh, douche, but <laughs> but did produce some really awesome albums because of it. So, you know, you got to take the good with the bad, right? So in verse one, he says, uh, there was a god, uh, an underwater god who controlled the sea, got killed by 10 million pounds of sludge from New York and New Jersey. So it's like, I guess, mankind kills him through pollution. There's a conflict between nature and man here, right? Uh, the god is old, having been there as long as the ocean, while man's destruction of the environment is relatively new. Uh, now in the first quote, he says, uh, the next lines are a mix of bullshit and reality, but here he gives a 
a bit more of an explanation. Uh, he says uh, it's a, a reference from what I understand to be Hebrew numerology, and I don't know a lot about it or any of it, really. I just remember someone telling me of the supposed fact that in the Hebrew language, especially in the Bible, you can find lots of references to man in the fifth and Satan in the sixth and God in the seventh. I didn't go to the library and figure it out. That's what he says. But uh, it's worth noting that his delivery becomes harsher throughout the verse from quietly singing about man to almost screaming about God. Uh, it's really jarring in a way, like the way he builds to this like frantic screaming at the end of it all, you know? Uh, it's pretty great, though. Uh, Mr. Greaves is up next. Uh, here, he said that uh, he, he said that it's the same as monkey going to heaven. It's ecological, but it's in the spirit or category of mythology. Uh, not a sp- specific one, but I do reference Neptune or Neptune's daughter. There's a loose reference there. It's uh, about the end of the world, I guess. Mr. Greaves is the death character of mythology. The, quote, man in the middle is Dr. Doolittle, because if you could speak to the animals, you would be the great link between mankind and the animal world. Uh, There's this theory that if not smarter than us, animals are aware of what's going on, and if we could communicate with them, they could give us the answer of the future and make everything okay. But I'm assuming that a nuclear winter will mean that Mr. Greaves is going to win in the end. It's a rather strange-sounding song initially. Uh, His opening, Hope Everything is All Right, is uh, really strained and like he's almost laughing, I guess. Then he picks up, like kind of picks up like to a, uh, I guess what I would call a jaunty pace, uh, where he says, uh, I believe in Mr. Greaves. That's kind of a, again, just a weird fucking song, like a lot of these songs are. But uh, it goes pretty smoothly into track nine, which is Crackety Jones. This song is a, quote, personal history song about an old college roommate of mine. I think I have a lot more patience and understanding about mental health issues now as a middle-aged man. But when you're young and you run into it, uh, especially when it's intimate and like, when you're living with someone, it can freak you out. I think now I would have a more nurturing attitude about it. Uh, that is according to Black Francis, of course. According to drummer Dave Lovering, uh, back in the old days, this was a big mosh pit song. Funny enough, occasionally, it can still get a mosh going sometimes. Uh, it doesn't happen that often, but every now and again it does, and it's pretty amazing. I'd say I'd love to see that. It'd be pretty fun. He here was a song with uh, Jose Jones, Told Me Alone in His Story. He got friends like Paco Pico Piedra, uh, La Muneca, he receives on his set. Uh, Jose Jones is the uh, weirdo psycho roommate that Pixie's um, singer Black Francis lived with for six months. He referenced that at some point in one of the Esquire interviews, which, uh, again, I don't think labeling him as, quote, psycho is the most, uh, I guess, politically correct way to address him, but his mentally ill roommate, right, Uh, while studying in Puerto Rico. The Paco Pico Piedra line is the singer's translation of Fred Flintstone, uh, one of the many Spanish language errors in his lyrics. Uh, the actual name in the Spanish version of the Flintstones is Pe- is Pedro uh, Pica Piedra, which is a little bit different, right? Uh, not Paco, it's Pedro. But I mean, perhaps it's intentional as the alliteration makes Paco Pico Piedra sound better with the flow of the song, but who knows? Uh, apparently his roommate was obsessed with the Flintstones, it says. Very fast, high energy song. Uh, it says a whole, whole lot in about a minute and 24 seconds. And then uh, La La Love You is up next at track 10. Uh, it's a silly non-song. It's very tongue-in-cheek, almost like a comedy sketch. It's very simple and sweet, but also, you know, fucky fucky you, you know? Uh, it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a fuck song done in this kind of uh, sing-songy, ooby-dooby, groovy language. It's not serious or anything. Just a little comedic break from whatever the hell else was going on. Uh, drummer Dave Lovering makes one of just two lead vocal contributions in the Pixies on this song. According to Wikipedia, uh, Black Francis, quote, gave it to Lovering as a, as a song to sing, like a Ringo thing. Uh, Lovering at first uh, refused to sing, but producer Gil Norton said that soon he was unable to get him away from the microphone. Uh, according to Lovering, we worked the song up, and then Charles turned to me and said, hey, why don't you sing it? Uh, it might be good to get another voice on the record, which is pretty funny because I had never sung on anything before. I remember going into the vocal booth, feeling pretty nervous about the whole thing. Uh, I probably had, you know, about three or four shots of whiskey just to calm my nerves. In fact, if you listen closely to the recording, you can hear me kicking over some bottles. Uh, there's a little bit of clanking going on, but I pulled it off. In fact, I've even had people come up to me and tell me they've used it as their wedding song, which is a nice compliment. Live, it's tricky. I'm not one of those drummers who can play and sing effortlessly. I'm huffing and puffing a little, uh, trying to keep my air flowing. So I pull back on the drums and I you know, play the song more reserved than I would if I wasn't singing. Uh, one thing about this song that is instantly recognizable is the drum pattern being played. So it's known as the, quote, Amen Break from the 1969 song Amen Brother by the Winstons uh, and has been credited as the most sampled song of all time. 
according to an article uh, from 538 in 2016, written by David Goldenberg, it has been sampled 2,239 times, uh, beating the second place song by almost 400. Now, I checked the site where they got their data from to at the time of the writing, uh, whosampled.com, and it actually now shows uh, 4,576 times. So, a lot. I, I want to talk about the history of the beat and what it meant to music as a whole. As a, you know, I found it really interesting, so bear with me. I will link to this article as well so you can read it later at your leisure, you know, if you want. So, here you go. So, uh, fans know that when a Beyonce, Kanye, or Diplo track drops, uh, it will likely contain a musical sample, an instrumental or vocal nugget from a song of yesteryear. That nugget will be rearranged, looped, or otherwise given new context. Uh, Drake's Hotline Bling, for example, didn't just introduce us to an unusual dance style. It sped up sampling of a 1972 R&B hit, reintroduced uh, the world to Timmy Thomas and the distinctive beat of Why Can't We Live Together. Uh, There's one song that's been sampled far more than any other, according to one measure. Uh, The website whosampled.com, whose audience obsessively tracks what's sampled, says that a 1960s track called Amen Brother by the Winstons is the most sampled track in history. And it's not particularly close. Uh, By its count, now it says more than 2,000 because this article was written four years ago. But like I said, it's over 4,500 by now, or now at least. They have uh, sampled the Amen break. So... You can hear the Winston's drummer, uh, G.C. Coleman, play the kick drum, snare drum, and cymbals in a funky four-bar pattern. But what is it about a 47-year-old six-second drum solo from a relatively unknown soul band that's given its musical immortality? Uh, the answer involves the invention of two new musical genres, a new piece of technology, and a power blackout. Uh, everyday fanatical music lovers identify hundreds of samples from songs, old and new, and add them to the uh, Wikipedia-style database of whosampled.com. Uh, Chris Reed, the head of content there, uh, vets each new entry with his team of moderators before it makes it onto the site. Uh, over the last eight years, more than 400,000 songs uh, featuring more than 225,000 samples have been cleared. Uh, until last year, the Amen break was running neck and neck for the most sample spot with a vocal sample from uh, Fab Five Freddy and besides Change the Beat, which features a distorted version of someone saying the phrase, ah, this stuff is really fresh. But as the Who Sample database has expanded out of its hip-hop roots to cover other genres over the past few years, the Amen break has taken the clear lead due to its versatility. Uh, Artists who have used the break include early hip-hop acts such as N.W.A., electronic music pioneers The Prodigy, uh, the heavy metal band Slipknot, Janet Jackson, even David Bowie. According to early hip-hop producer Louis Breakbeat Lou Flores, DJ legend African Bambada was the first one who broke out the AMM break. It was in the late 1970s and DJ Culture had just gotten a finger hold in New York City. The first MCs, impresarios such as Cool Hurt, Grandmaster Flash, and Bambada himself had started spinning their favorite tracks at clubs and parties, inspiring their fellow their young followers with a treasure trove of danceable beats. These MCs were already highly competitive with one another, uh, they hoarded their favorite albums that masked the identity of their favorite tracks. Uh, it was much easier to do in the pre-Shazam days. That competition was taken to another level after the New York City blackout of 1977. The often told story goes that widespread looting of electronic shops led to a proliferation of otherwise prohibitively expensive turntables and other audio equipment into poorer neighborhoods in the Bronx and Brooklyn. As a result, the number of DJs multiplied overnight. Uh, MCs looking for an edge had to dig even deeper into the archives of rock, funk, and Motown records that supplied their beats. Flores, who MC with Bombada, said that uh, he had found the track Amen Brother on the B-side of a once popular 1969 soul record by the Winstons and kept it in a secret stash. Uh, attempts to reach Bombada, who has recently been accused of having committed sexual abuse in the 1980s uh, through his lawyer, were unsuccessful. Didn't know that. That's uh, gross. The whole song was, you know, immediately it was it was danceable, right? But the party really got going during that six-second drum break a minute and a half into the track. Uh, Flores and Bombada would slow the beat down, going from 45 to 33 and a third, and play it again and again as B-Boys, or Break Boys, tore it up on the dance floor. In 1981, Flores, just 15 years old at the time, and his business partner, Lenny Roberts, decided to show off the diversity of early hip-hop influences by collecting their favorite songs into one record, uh, and in doing so, revealed Bombada's secret. Uh, In addition to Do the Funky Penguin by Rufus Thomas, good God, and Mary Mary by the Monkees, their record, Ultimate Breaks and Beats, included Amen Brother with the slowed-down version of the Amen Break. 
Uh, Flores said that at first, Ultimate Breaks and Beats sold modestly, uh, mainly to club DJs. But in 1984, a new record technology called a sampler made it possible to layer music samples throughout songs. A sampler was basically a fancy tape recorder that allowed anyone to record a sound and play it again and again at different pitches at the touch of a button. All of a sudden, musicians of all stripes started hunting down their favorite breaks and Ultimate break beats. Ultimate Breaks and Beats became a hot seller once again. By 1986, there was enough demand to re-release the album, the first in a series of 25 volumes of ultimate breaks and beats that Flores would produce. Uh, by the early 1990s, the Amen break wasn't just being used by acts such as Rob Bass and Heavy D. It had become one of the foundational beats of an entirely new electronic dance music genre, Jungle. Jungle artists often sped up the break, sli- uh, sliced it up into individual drum hits, rearranged it, and played it for minutes at a time while layering techno, reggae, and a melting pot of other sounds on top of it. Uh, because the Amen break is a short drums-only break beat, uh, it sounds good at all sorts of speeds and with all sorts of alterations, making it easy to loop and quite adaptable uh, to all sorts of genres. Uh, you can whack basically any sample, uh, loop, synth, or bass line over it, and it'll sound good, said uh, Yol Bago by email. Uh, Bago creates all sorts of electronic dance music under the name DJ Coco Bryce and uh, used the break in his new track, Massive. Uh, all Even after Jungle's popularity started to ebb before 2000, the Amen break kept the beat. But there are lots of drums-only, easily alterable breakbeats out there that could work. What makes the Amen break special? Uh, a lot of artists seem to think that there's something special about the drumming itself. Uh, Flores calls them big, dirty drums. Uh, Amen has a kind of swing, a lot of character, said Reed, an accomplished DJ and producer himself. There's a lot going on between the kicks and snares. There aren't many recordings that are so distorted but still sound so good, adds uh, Boris English, a jungle DJ who goes by the stage name Borai and has used the Amen break in tracks including Never Is Good and The Seeker. Uh, If you try and re-record the break played exactly the same by another drummer, it never sounds as good. Uh, G.C. Coleman, the Winston's drummer, who actually played the original Amen break, never made any money from his popularity. He died homeless in 2006. It's fucking sad. His bandmate in the Winstons, frontman Richard Spencer, nope, not that Richard Spencer, <laughs> also did not benefit from the widespread use of his band's music. But in 2015, a couple of British DJs launched a GoFundMe drive asking people who have benefited from the Amen break to give back. Uh, two versions of the drive have now netted Spencer almost $33,000. That's a fucking fraction of what he would have made had he you know gotten paid for all the sampling but oh boy uh once you have the distinctive beat of the amen breaking your head you can hear it in all sorts of places it cropped up in the futurama theme song on the title screen of the powerpuff girls on SimCity 4 even in jeep ads now while some of its latent popularity is likely due to nostalgia or perhaps even a result of an industry-wide in-joke a la the wilhelm scream uh reed thinks that it's now simply become a standard go-to in many studios a lot of producers use it without having known they have used it, he said. Very interesting. Now, moving right along, uh, number 13, Baby, is up next. Uh, confusingly, at track 11. Uh, in an interview with NME, Black Francis said, This is a collage of images of when I was growing up in Los Angeles. Uh, number 13 traditionally means bad luck, but in America, especially in the 60s among bikers and Chicanos, the number 13 is the 13th letter of the alphabet, M for marijuana. It's a really goofy subculture but it's kind of funny and even today you see it spray painted on walls the uh, meter boys number 13 so it it is about a uh, mexican girl or a samoan girl a boyish sexual uh, adolescent collage of southern california living gotta love the got a tattoo tit say number 13 line that's a just a weird fucking line but anyway there goes my gun is up next so according to according to the pixies Doolittle by ben cesario uh, Black Francis says the song is a scene. The actor is shouting across some expanse of space. Obviously, it's a space that contains potential danger. And there goes my gun as a result. Furthermore, he is proud of the song as an accomplishment in minimalism. Uh, certainly with There Goes My Gun or La La Love You or even the whole record in general, I was into how you don't need much. Uh, I don't know if There Goes My Gun works as some beautiful poem, but in terms of the movie, the movie totally works. Uh, he told Esquire, it's, it's not really about guns or violence. It's it's like one or two squares from a comic book. Uh, a mystery in the darkness and the subsequent violence or attack that happens afterwards. There's not much left. Uh, he basically just says There Goes My Gun throughout the entire song. So yeah, uh, minim- minimalist for sure. Uh, it's just a fun song, you know? Uh, hey is also uh, is up next, which I, I love the opening the opening line where he's like, hey, been trying to meet you. Then the, then the bass comes in. It's like, doo, 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 doo. 
and I don't know, it's like the way he sings that's fucking great. And the uh, Black, Black Francis said that uh, people love this song. You know, it's like our only R and B song with this three chord turnaround. It's basically uh, their version of, of a slow jam R and B uh, song, right? I don't think we were trying to do that. It just sort of came out naturally. Uh, I suppose it's a relationship song. It's it's not really my own history, but distilled or cold from ancient stories of my parents from when they were younger. Uh, things I heard of or uh, rumors uh, loosely based on that kind of stuff, right? And it's a banger. I like that one. Track 14 is up next, Silver, that uh, for the longest time, I've always read it as Sliver, which is, I don't know, what's kind of weird, but... Uh, this is the only song on Doolittle in which Kim Deal shares co-writing credits with Francis Black. He told Esquire that Silver is the only composition that he did with Kim on this record, or in this session. He says, I, I think we worked on it a couple of times the previous year or something like that. Uh, I don't know what it means to her, and I don't know what it means to me. The lyrics are all very vague and vaguely folk-sounding. Uh, you can almost hear it's like a faux folk song. Uh, it's definitely an abstraction. At least that's my interpretation of it. Uh, it was all about creating a mood. This is a song me and Kim wrote really fast one night, sitting around bored in the studio, waiting for whatever to happen with the engineers. Uh, there were other lyrics that were supposed to have been written for the actual song, but all we got left were the original phrases that we came up with, so that was that. That was, again, from uh, his talk with NME in April of 1989. So, finally, closing the record. I know, this episode's running long. Thank you for sticking with me. Track 15, Gouge Away. The fucking awesome song. Uh, he said of the song in 1989, it's a story about Samson and Delilah. Uh, you're the first person that's actually realized, talking to whoever he's talking to, I think. Uh, probably because the song doesn't actually mention Samson or Delilah. It's, it's sort of a sex story. Uh, Delilah shows up as a secret spy of the Philistines and has an affair with Samson. I don't know what he was getting out of it, but enough sex and drugs and relaxation to give up his secrets. Maybe he loved her, I don't know. But they gouge his eyes out for it in the end. Now, he told Esquire some years later, uh, continuing uh, Doolittle's use of biblical stories for lyrical in- inspiration, uh, gouge away, empowered by, empowered by God with supernatural powers, Samson is able to accomplish incredible things in the name of the Lord. Uh, however, his weakness for women and reliance on his long hair, which gave him his powers, eventually leads to his injury and death. Uh, Samson had his eyes gouged out by enemy Philistines in a time of weakness, explaining the title of the song. Now, he, he, Black Francis also said that he thinks it is the best song on the record. So it's not my favorite song on the record, of course, but it is one of my favorites. Like it's top five, I think. Uh, the whole album just keeps you engrossed and engaged from start to finish. Like whether you dive in deep and like get into every ounce of every single meaning of, of the of the album, you know, or if you just get in and casually listen, either way, it's fucking great. And it's, it's a goddamn classic. I mean, it's five out of five. Uh, go back and revisit it. You know, if you have it, it still holds up pretty well. You know, thanks for sticking around this long. I know it's been a really long one. That's one I wanted to do for a really long time. And uh, I'm glad I finally got it done. So, uh, again, thanks for sticking around. I appreciate it. And as always, follow me on social media and uh, all that good shit, right? And then come back next month or next week, I guess. But the it, it'll be the start of Influencer Month. And like I said on the mini episode, uh, it'll be Daryl Hall and John Oates. And if you're wondering why I'm not calling them Hall and Oates, I will explain that in the next episode. It's a pretty... um. Uh, interesting story actually so anyway for the vinyl countdown i'm jeremy levine and i hope to be in your ears next week everybody take care thanks